everyone, and welcome to Unorthodoxy and to episode 5 in our series on reworlding. Before we dive in, a few news items. First, I have been meaning to say this for a while, but I haven't gotten around to it. Um, there is a book that I co-edited with my friend Roberto Cervent, and it is out. It's called Theologies of Failure. It has a number of essays in it by scholars of all kinds, various theological perspectives, conservative, liberal, Protestant, Catholic, and so on. And they're all grappling with the notion of failure and how that relates to theology. It may not be everyone's cup of tea, but um, if it does sound interesting to you, you can check it out. It's published by Cascade and it is, of course, available online very easily. Then the second piece of news is that if all goes according to plan, this week I will be on my way to Cambridge, England to attend the New Trinitarian Ontologies Conference that is happening there. Many of my theological heroes are speaking and I am, to put it mildly, completely thrilled that I get to attend. If you happen to be going, let me know and we can maybe meet up. I'll be pretty easily contactable via Twitter, so you can find me there. Links to the book and to my Twitter account are in the show description. Now, let's get back to the subject at hand, which in this episode is the subject of running and returning. This is a really great way to look at this whole subject of reworlding that we've been looking at. Right up front, though, I do want to gratefully acknowledge Eugene, who sent me a, a lot of wonderful stuff on some Jewish sources on the subject matter that we're looking at in this series. So, thank you, Eugene for what has been for me a really great angle on the subject at hand. I am particularly grateful for this because sources in English on this subject are few to non-existent, especially for those of us, me included, whose Hebrew is limited to non-existent. So this is really superb. Um, bearing in mind that I do have scholarly limitations, uh, my explanation of what follows probably needs to be regarded as similar to the words that came out of the mouth of Balaam's donkey. They may be true, but the speaker is nevertheless remarkably stupid and ignorant of some of the wider context. For this reason, I'm going to allow the thoughts that Eugene sent to me to be grounded in some of the things that I do in fact have some understanding of, and I can only hope that this makes sense to you. Let's start here. In that strangely brilliant biblical book of Ezekiel, which involves this mysterious world of images and prophecies and a fair amount of weirdness, right at the beginning of the book, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision. The context of the vision is grief and mourning. The people of Israel have been ripped from their homeland and thrown into a brand new world. And it's not a very pleasant looking world at that. It is a de-worlded world of exile and enslavement. And when the prophet has this vision, he sees four living creatures. They have a kind of human form, uh, but they have four faces and four wings in addition. Uh, so they look rather strange. They have the faces of a human being, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And this indicates many things, but I'm going to take it here to indicate that our natures involve all kinds of dimensions that we need to contend with and reconcile. There is the predator and the sacrificial victim, symbolized by the lion and the ox. There is the eagle, which is this uh, this creature of the sky. So it's, it's a symbol of that part of ourselves that strives for the transcendent. And 
then there is the face, uh, which is trying to mediate all of these things. That part of the messenger, the soul, the self, the angelic that mediates these things. There are other ways that scholars unpack the symbolism too, but that's not going to be our main focus here. The ox, for example, is a symbol of wealth and the lion symbolizes power. So that's something that you can you can check out if you're interested. Then as Ezekiel is describing this vision, he says the following. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. The concept here that we're looking at, and this comes from the first chapter of Ezekiel verse 14, the concept we're looking at is what is referred to in Hebrew as Ratzo Veshuv or Ratzo Vashov. The Hebrew is transliterated differently depending on the source, but the idea is the same. Ratzo Veshuv is this idea of running and returning. It's the phrase in Ezekiel that is sometimes translated as speeding or darting back and forth or moving backwards and forwards. There is an analogy here with the vision of Jacob in Genesis, where angels are ascending and descending a ladder, moving between heaven and earth, although it is an analogy and not a direct equivalence to what Ezekiel is saying. The key to the image in Ezekiel is this idea of advancing towards higher levels of spiritual awareness and then recoiling or falling from that state of grandeur into the lower aspects of ourselves, into, in a way, into our material being. We might think of this in terms of necessary successes and necessary failures, both of which are aspects of the mediation of reality and of our interpreting of reality. In the 13th century, one rabbinic authority, Rabenu Bachya, uses the passage to describe the nature of our relationship with God. And this is where it gets particularly interesting for us. Put very simply, it is impossible to have a static relationship with God. That is what this image of running and returning symbolizes. And in fact, we need to be able to go back and forth, upward and downward. We need to run and return like those weird creatures in the first chapter of Ezekiel. I alluded to the passage in Genesis about Jacob's ladder because it reflects this image of grasping something of heaven, experiencing a deep connection with the divine and then having it in a way escape from us, of experiencing in a way a loss of the experience of the divine. Our tendency is to think that it's only when we experience closeness to God that we are in fact close to God. But this is obviously rather short-sighted. We even experience this from time to time with people we love. Sometimes we can be in the very same room as they are, and yet we can feel like they are a million miles away. Why would our relationship with God be very much different to this? After all, human relationships are symbolic, ultimately, of our relationship with that which is ultimate. The transcendent, which is ever-present, is not something we can escape because it is the ground of our very being at every moment and in every way. And yet, we may not always feel this presence. And also, as is the case with our natures as interpretive beings, we may sometimes misinterpret the feeling of absence as actual absence. 
The Jesuits have a similar idea in the Ignatian notion of consolation and desolation. What we experience in consolation is from God, but there is a great deal to be experienced also in desolation. The experience of desolation is, whether we feel comfortable with it or not, equally a gift. It is equally vital to the life of faith to, in a way, experience a loss of faith uh, and, and many struggles that go along with it. In fact, if you have never lost faith, never felt the absence of God, something is being repressed in all likelihood. It's like that thing that the atheist Julian Barnes said, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. There is something in a way healthy in this atheism, if you could ever conceive of a form of healthy atheism. It's a recognition that something or someone haunts us in the feelings or experience of desolation. St. John of the Cross also reflects this idea in his notion of the dark night of the soul. It's the idea that often we get nearer to God in the very experience of our loss of God. Now, I'm not going to try and endorse the idea that we should regard the loss of God simplistically. Sometimes the felt absence of God is owed to something more like sin or depravity, which is less about our being, say, close to the transcendent than it is about our operating in ways that directly contradict the ordering of being itself. Sometimes we experience times of desolation because we are rebelling against what is ultimately real, even if only through trying to reorder reality to suit ourselves. To notice what the meaning of desolation is, is vital. And it helps to do this with some spiritual direction or at the very least with some form of examen prayer. So I'm not talking about embracing the various ways that we fall from grace as always being good. But when we are genuinely seeking the divine light and in the very process of seeking the divine light, we often will enter into a space of darkness. And chances are pretty good that this is just something that we're going to need to get through and obviously experience in the process. Both consolation and desolation, both running and returning are aspects of our experience of God. There is something in this that reminds me of the work of Simone Weil, the idea that when we experience loss, especially a hunger for God, we can be nourished by our hunger because the hunger is also divine and also a gift of the divine. We are capable of misattributing that hunger, of course, and of using various distractions to draw us away from being nourished by that hunger. Human beings are profoundly capable of misnaming realities thus the need for support and for genuine spiritual insight. There is some metaphysics in this that I want to touch on shortly relating to the ideas of Pseudo-Dionysius, whose work I mentioned in the previous episode, but let's first have a look at this in terms of two other notions from the Jewish tradition. The first is from the Hasidic tradition specifically, and it is that of Kalot Hanefesh, and second is the notion of Tzimtzum, Kalot Hanefesh. This is the idea of the dissolution of the soul. It's the idea that we are elevated by our longing for God, but in the process of being elevated, there is the danger that we lose our humanity. In a way, the closer we get to heaven, the further we get from earth, and there is something in the longing for heaven that we need to be human. So we need to retain the distinctiveness of our own natures. We can't just have words or sort of sublime experiences we also need the flesh. 
I think that to understand this notion of the dissolution of the soul, we might look at at an example of how two lovers might get so obsessed with each other, so completely needy, that they want to merge with each other, that everything they are as distinct persons and selves ought to dissolve and disappear into the other person. This is just an analogy, but I think we've all seen this play out in different ways, and maybe some of us have even experienced it. This is actually something of a problem. It's it's also found in the Buddhist kind of notion of at some point be, being one with the all and and having your essence basically dissolved into into the larger unity of reality. This loss of distinctiveness of being burned up in the presence of the divine is symbolized in a few biblical stories about how some people get too close to God and as a result they die. This is not about God being vindictive and punitive, but of people failing to recognize that for love to be present at all, restraint is also necessary. To be able to love someone else, you also need to be your own distinct self. What is required then is that we need to have earth too, something to yank us back down so that we can experience ascent again. Gravity and grace are both needed, something to help us to run away and something to help us to return. And part of the point of this is that we are not meant only to be elevating ourselves, but should also be, and this is a great act of love, we should also be elevating everything around us, pulling the whole earth up to heaven, as I've said before. This is actually one of the functions of the law, which is to set limits on being, to define beings in terms of their roles and gifts. This is communicated very beautifully by Alexander Politrak. He writes, In Ezekiel's prophetic vision of the heavenly chariot, he speaks of the burning angels, seraphim, running and returning, Radso Vashov. They run up to God, burning up in self-nullification, and then they return to resume their place and their mission. This rhythm of running and returning is fundamental to life. Heartbeat and breathing are reflections of this rhythm, the dynamic of running and returning is key to our divine service. We should strive to get closer to God, to get higher in our appreciation of the divine, but we must always return to our post and to our mission to elevate the world, not just ourselves. Polytrack then compares this running and returning to the rocking back and forth in some forms of prayer. He says, we rock when we pray to God in the morning, but then we roll back to work and make an honest living to support our families and make this world a better place. It's about rock and roll, basically. So in mentioning all of this, that couples the idea of running and returning with the idea of the dissolution of the soul. But then there's this other mystical idea of tsimtsum, which is this idea that for God to create, he, he needs to restrain himself. He needs to... Uh, in a way, self-abnegate. He's got to recede to give room for the existence of that which is not God. As Simone Weil says, if God did not recede to create, there would be nothing but God. Creation has to do with the reduction of the infinite light necessary for it to be physically manifested. The infinite light is also, paradoxically, a kind of perfect divine darkness out of which the light of creation can shine. There is maybe a little bit of a, a metaphysical problem that I see in this idea of symptom, and I think it should be taken more symbolically than as metaphysical uh, reality. The metaphysics of God's relation to creation is not one of competition. So there is, so 
that is what symptom really must represent this idea that god and creation are not in any way in competition which is why in christianity we can have this image of christ who is true god and true man that's impossible it's 100% God, 100% man. And how does that work mathematically? Well, it works very easily because there is no competition between God's nature and true human nature. So that's something to keep in mind as we go on. So much in life works according to this principle of symptom. Something recedes to allow something else to flourish. And again, that's why it is a significant principle because it reflects something that is deeply true. This is then echoed and reciprocated or carried forward. You can even think, for instance, of the Lion King's very simple explanation of the circle of life. Lions eat the antelope and when lions die, their bodies feed the ground and the grass grows and the antelope then eat the grass. Yes, life is more complex than this, but the principle remains true, which is that all things have to recede and it's in this receding that they reclaim their truest being. To quote Jesus, we have to learn to die to ourselves to be able to gain our lives. It's on this point that I want to bring in some of Pseudo-Dionysius's metaphysics. The idea is this, all that has being is owed to that which transcends being, and the source of being is the good, that is, God. The first gift of goodness is existence itself, and as St. Thomas says, echoing Dennis, being as such is good. Existence in itself is a good thing. But then life also, as we know, involves many forms of death, which in the Christian tradition is transformed from a metaphor of evil to a metaphor of faith. To die to self is to learn to rest and return to that which can help to elevate us again. Running and returning is about running up to the source of all things and then falling back down, returning to earth to allow that same source of all things to lift us up. This gives us a very beautiful pattern to look out for in our lives, but it also comes with two warnings. Sometimes what people do, at least as I've observed, is that they fall away from one understanding of God into another, but instead of seeing the fall, the return, say, as an intermediate state that allows us to run back up to God, from God in a way, they'll get stuck. They'll insist that they have arrived. They'll treat the new state as more fixed than it really is. And so the first warning is this. Beware of treating your own running and returning too rigidly. Keep being open to growing and learning. Keep looking for the divine light, even if it means that sometimes you may find yourself surrounded by divine darkness. The other warning is a little subtler and requires a serious dose of discernment. Sometimes people feel that they have grown or that they are growing when their essential ego structure is just as firmly in place as it ever was. As studies on self-deception show, we are notoriously poor at judging our own personal growth Unless others tell you that you've grown or that you see observable changes in your life, it's actually safe to say that you are very much the same person as you were last year or even five years ago. You'll sit down with a friend and have a conversation, say, and suddenly and very awkwardly it will dawn on you that this is the same conversation you always have with your friend. You have mistaken the passage of time for the arrival of transformation. 
As it turns out, the myth of progress is alive and well in some quarters because it seems to be part of our own experience. Remember, of course, that experience itself is something tainted by what I've discussed as missing the mark by the nature of sin. I recently watched a video online by someone who tells his conversion story of how he converted from Christianity to atheism. He was a fundamentalist Christian who then became a fundamentalist atheist. And it's absolutely obvious to me that the labels changed, but the container was unaffected. He was a horrible mix of arrogance and ignorance when he called himself a Christian. And now he is a horrible mix of arrogance and ignorance, even though he calls himself an atheist. At least that's the impression I get. It's not that he obviously grew, but rather that he simply swapped tribes. What may seem like running and returning can sometimes be a lot like running on a treadmill. There's a lot of sound and fury, but nothing is really happening and you're not really going anywhere. Following Dennis the Areopagite again, here's what I think about this, or at least a part of what I think about this. The aim is always union with the divine. The aim is nearness to that which is love and out of which all things obtain their being. The aim is not merely to merge with the divine in the sense that a Buddhist may argue for becoming one with the great blob of being. Rather, it is to enter into a paradox. It is to be at one with God, to be one with God without ever losing distinctness. I have gone through many phases in my own faith, as many of you know. The measure of faith, though, has turned out to have nothing to do with intellectual assent. Although intellectual assent may have a part to play. Much if not all of it, has to do with presence, with knowing the divine even in times of desolation. And I sincerely hope and pray that you know precisely this as you journey on. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. I tend not to ask this, but I would appreciate it. If you like listening to this podcast, please leave a review if you have a chance to. You can also tell your friends about it if you think it'll do them any good. You can also support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. And until next time, take care, everyone. Cheers. Cheers.